0: and welcome to The Chiefs on Monocle24. I'm Tyler Brulé. Over the course of this special edition of the Big Interview series, I'm speaking to C-suite leaders from industries big and small about not just COVID-19's impact, but also where the world of business heads from here. Today, we speak with the editor of The Sunday Times, Emma Tucker, from her South London home. Tucker joined The Sunday Times in January this year, just as COVID-19 was creeping towards Europe and just in time to chronicle the UK's patchy response. The newspaper's explosive investigation into the government's poor management, made for an impactful start for the new editor-in-chief. But with print's future uncertain at best, how does Tucker aim to keep pushing the legacy title forward? Plus, why is Sunday journalism still so important? And why harnessing digital media to enhance, not replace print is key to keeping things alive? I'm Tyler Boulay, and I'm delighted to welcome Emma Tucker to the Chiefs edition of The Big Interview. And before we start, I should disclose as well, Emma Tucker also used to be my former editor at The Financial Times. Emma, very good to talk to you. Of course, we've been chatting uh, back and forth over the past few weeks, but great to have you um, on the line. I just maybe wanted to start by, by getting into it. And And really giving us a feeling for what you inherited. Of course, you were you were at the Times before, but then you walked into this newsroom at such an extraordinary moment.
1: So I took over at the Sunday Times the end of January. By February, the papers started to be dominated by this thing that was coming at us from China, this pandemic. And gradually, if you look at the papers, they were more and more dominated by this story. But my big recollection from back then was the almost complete absence of the prime minister. Halfway through March, I was talking to the head of news and one of us said, or the other one said, you know, what the hell was going on? What was really going on in February? Where was the prime minister? What decisions were being taken? It just struck me that, you know, this would make a really good read, Might not be particularly revelatory, but it was just one of those good bits of uh, what we like to call a TikTok of what happened and who was doing what when. We're lucky at the Sunday Times to have this insight team. So they were put onto this project and what they produced was an incredibly good, solid piece of reporting that also happened to be rather explosive because it more or less painted a picture of a government not so much in shambles but just one that lacked focus took too long to act uh, didn't talk to its neighbouring countries seemed to be confused about what the approach was going to be and just generally well, it was one of those great bits of journalism often the best stories are there staring you in the face you just have to piece together uh, through diligent reporting what happened and you end up with a really good story and, that, and I have to say I'll be honest I was surprised by The extent to which the impact that this piece made, I mean, I knew it was a good piece of work, but I had no idea quite how explosive it would be.
0: You left out a fundamental bit as well. Where was the prime minister? The key thing that came out of this, and, and it was one of those pieces of journalism for all of us who love a story like this, and it kind of gave you goosebumps as you read it because you thought this is really delivering something which I couldn't see that the electronic media or let's say the broadcast outlets could ever do something like this. This is something which is the domain of the Sunday papers and one would say in this era, the Sunday Times.
1: Well, exactly. And you're absolutely right. Obviously, the main story that came out of this was that the government had been holding these Cobra meetings, these sort of meetings for a crisis. There were five in succession before Boris Johnson even attended one. And it's very unusual for a prime minister not to attend one. And again, the interesting thing is everybody knew that. It was just a question of piecing it all together and putting it in context. And your point about Sunday journalism In the digital era, everybody has to think really hard about what role they're playing. Now, we know that we cannot compete against the BBC, which people receive via their licence fee in the UK. We cannot compete against them and their huge newsroom for breaking news. So we're not even going to try. So what is the thing that a Sunday newspaper can deliver that other outlets can't? Well, more than anything, it's well-resourced investigative journalism. Off the back of that first Insight piece, we sold something like 3000 subscriptions in a weekend, which is a phenomenal number. I mean, that was digital and print, primarily digital, but there were some print subscriptions came in off the back of it too. Because it turns out that what people will pay for is distinctive, unique, exclusive journalism that you can't read anywhere else.
0: When you arrived at the end of January, of course, you'd been within the group, you'd been within the Times family. What did you inherit, and what is the opportunity that you see now? I mean, you're still just reforming the paper as we chat here.
1: Well, I inherited an absolute machine. I mean, it's a a very well-oiled, big tanker the Sunday Times. What I said when I arrived was... You know, I think there's naturally some rivalry between the daily paper and the Sunday paper. And I think there was a feeling on the Sunday that they were missing out on the sort of digital transformation. So my message to the Sunday Times was, you have no idea what a huge advantage you have in digital. And my ambition is to make the Sunday Times the lead title in digital. Now, that advantage comes from the fact that I think pretty much unique in the world. If you look at the times across seven days, so the Monday to Saturday and the Sunday times, the highest digital traffic comes on a Sunday. Now I don't think that happens with any other legacy title anywhere. So not only do we get the most traffic and the highest amount of engagement on a Sunday, but also everything that a Sunday newspaper does as I've just said, the kind of journalism that a Sunday newspaper should be doing, exclusive investigations, campaigns, those are all things that work very well in digital. So I arrived the level of digital knowledge was not as high as it was on the Times, but my message was you've got a huge advantage here and let's exploit it and to be fair they've all kind of really taken that message on board and I think it's really excited the newsroom
0: and when you look at it, the digital proposition, because, you know, anyone who's grown up with a culture of Sunday papers, it is very hard to place. But of course, yes, you can have a tablet, you can have your phone. But what is the digital advantage that you see? Because, of course, we can all remember those romantic times back in the, in the 90s when you'd go and get your first edition uh, somewhere at Piccadilly Circus, and then you'd drive and get bagels on Brick Lane, and then you'd go home, you know, and you'd read the paper and have a drink or whatever it was. Now, those romantic days, much of that is gone. For you, is that saying, OK, Okay, people are going to get a first look as soon as the site goes up, you know, just before midnight. What is sort of the digital value there, especially, as you say, when you're when you've got to not compete, but you've still got the BBC and other big beasts sitting around the world as well?
1: The great news is, I don't think obviously print is in decline, that's no secret. But funnily enough, our print sales have actually held up very well during the lockdown. So the great advantage I think we have is not only do we remain strong in print and obviously We have a strong commitment to keeping the print paper distinctive, but at the same time, we can do very well in digital. So for example, when we did the first Insight piece, I took the decision to publish it at six o'clock on Saturday night. Now, there is some resistance from the old guard, you know, oh, this will cannibalise our print sales. We shouldn't be doing this. But, you know, my point to them was we have distinct audiences as well. And as it happened, on both occasions we published the Insight Read at six o'clock on a Saturday. They both got particularly the first time around, enormously high traffic on the Saturday, from Saturday to midnight. But then they got, as I would have predicted, the highest spike of traffic on Sunday morning, because most of our readers who read us in digital would come in on Sunday morning. But what was really interesting was that the print sale also went up. So the idea that you're cannibalising, if anything, I think the fact that we put this big story up on six o'clock and it caused such a stir on social media, acted, if anything, as a branding or promotion tool for the print sale. So far from cannibalising each other, I think the noise that accompanied the digital publication, actually pushed print sales the next day. Now, you, you won't necessarily get this every week, but my point to the newsroom is, you know, we have different audiences and the one doesn't cannibalize the other.
0: Let's talk about audience for a second. You came from, it's been a few years now, used to be at the Financial Times, used to be my editor there, a paper which is still globally respected. I also feel as well that a lot of people are oddly saying for a global newspaper like the FT, it's actually been too UK focused in the midst of everything. Yeah, what opportunities do you see for the Sunday Times going beyond the shores of the UK? Are there opportunities to have a bigger digital global voice and have a different level of cut through when we look at The Economist, when we look at all these other pan-regional titles that are out there?
1: The way things are going, the future is really difficult for legacy media, but it turns out that in the digital era, the quality media titles are the ones that are making the best fist of it. One of the things I always felt was that the Times and the Sunday Times slightly, we punched slightly below our weight You know, and actually there's a slight lack of global ambition there. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to take over the world. But what I think The Times and The Sunday Times should be doing is occasionally coming up with stories that have global cut through, just like The New York Times does, The Wall Street Journal does. I think as the digital transformation continues it's likely that there will just be a handful of big quality media titles left and those i think obviously they have their core markets ours is the uk and that will always be our primary focus but it doesn't mean that we can't be producing bits of journalism that make waves you know at a wider level
0: on that point as well many who who are listening will not know because they're not following the trade there's not a big story yet your group is moving into radio i mean you're already in radio but there's going to be a bit of a of a rebranding does the sunday times have quite a role I would imagine would have a sizable role in this new world of the Times having a well it'll be a listen if you have a domestic radio station today you have a global radio station today I can imagine there's going to be a good listen on Sunday morning sometime in the autumn or wherever, whenever this thing is going to relaunch
1: Well Times Radio is very exciting because One of the things that we want to do is to find new audiences. So we have our existing audience and by and large it's older, uh, it's very male, it's an audience that either still consumes print media or grew up with print media and therefore likes to read a digital proposition that sort of follows a print pattern. But what we need to do is reach new audiences. So the Times Radio is a, a kind of opportunity to do that. So it's going to be skewed towards a slightly younger audience, perhaps a broader audience And I think, you know, it's a great opportunity for the Sunday Times, because obviously what they want is for there to be very close collaboration between the two newsrooms and the new radio station. And given that we, our reporters are working towards a weekly deadline, I've said to them that they need to be all over Times Radio.
0: Let's spend a little time just on trying to run a newsroom. On one side, journalists, of course, are used to working in rather adverse uh, situations. So sometimes when I hear people say, oh, it's amazing that, you know, we were able to get a magazine amazing to get. A newspaper it's like you know people have been through more than this and have still managed to get titles out all around the world in places which are are less well served by technology by print nevertheless you came in at a time it must have been oh my god like all of a sudden this thing hits or have you just really seen this as a great opportunity to be running what is of course been an extraordinary story with holding power um well certainly of this century but of, of maybe the last hundred years
1: it was very tricky. I didn't know that many people on the Sunday Times. You'd think I would because, you know, we work closely together to only two floors between the two titles. But the amazing thing is I didn't know many people. I hadn't had time to bring in any of my own people. I'd only been doing the job for a few weeks, but I think it was four or five when basically, you know, lockdown happened and we were all dispersed. So I had embarked on a sort of series of getting to know people, getting to know the reporters, uh, the editors. That was cut short very quickly. So my sort of grand tour hadn't finished. There was a handful of people going to the office towards the end of the week, but the rest of the time we were working remotely. It was very frustrating. Obviously, they are a brilliant team, particularly on the production side, which is where I think most of the pressure has been. They got on with it, but it was frustrating for me because I felt I hadn't had a chance to get to know the newsroom at all. But newspapers are extraordinary beasts. They somehow or other, every time I pick up the Sunday Times on a Sunday morning, I think this is a miracle. How did we do that?
0: One thing we've been talking to business leaders Around the world, about over the last you know few weeks, is a little bit you know what is the the new office environment going to look like? And you know one thing we've been talking a lot about when you look at the narrative, both from government in the UK, but at the same time a lot of media. I don't think you guys fall into the trap as much as others, but there is this question around is it safe? And and everything is suddenly around safety. And, and of course, we understand that is incredibly important. But as you've been doing also in the paper of the last few weeks as well, doing a bit of benchmarking, looking at the rest of the world, and it just seems like who is writing some of this stuff? And it's not even stuff, a lot of it is guff, because you think people are asking for the science, no one can find it. And there almost seems to be a little bit of a I don't want to call it anti-business, but you know, do people actually want to get back into the office? Does the government want to get them back into the office?
1: Well, I am constantly astonished at the level of, maybe it's a UK thing, but the level of fear in this country is... Really, exceedingly high. I think one of the things that our job, as sort of in business, is to do is to remind people of what the actual risks are, because I think people have somehow lost the ability to judge risk. Um, and one of the things I find interesting is that, and actually rather sort of reassuring, although this could sound injudicious is that we have for example at the office they've done everything you know they set up one way systems the office could not be better prepared but when the small handful of us that do go in go in what happens is human instinct takes over so you have all these sort of precautions and you know spaced out desks but suddenly you want a group of people to call judgment on a picture or to share intel on a headline and the next thing you know there's a cluster of people around a desk and all social distancing has been forgotten because we are human beings anyway perhaps that's the way it'll evolve in the future that there'll be more focus on clusters as it is that you know the times and the sunday times offices are not do not represent a cluster at the moment and uh, the people that come in I, I think feel pretty safe when they're there but um it's interesting how reluctant a lot of people are to come back and whether that's fear or just a sort of sudden realization that commuting into london every day is not so great i don't know but a bit of me thinks we'll go back to where we were just like that overnight and everyone will forget about it. And Another bit of me thinks that it could all be very different for a long time. I just don't know. And
0: I, I think that is the danger because I think it does feel right now that if you keep on looking at every story on the BBC and it's all sort of focused on safety and I listen, I just see scaremongering when I read it, then I think it just it puts people, or at least many people, into a corner and they're not going to advance. And I mean, you and I have been, you know, also sharing emails. You also have to talk to people like adults. And I mean, that is a role of what the Sunday Times does and, and good media outlets. And, and it seems like we've had a government, though, Who's been really talking to children with placards and you know black and yellow sort of warning tape, and that sinks in. I guess I'm wondering if for people who might be listening elsewhere, and there are people, most of our listeners are, are elsewhere, they're outside of the UK. What role does the Sunday Times play um, when you look at sort of the political playing field right now?
1: We want to get back to good trustworthy reporting. I think it's interesting. Sunday journalism, there's a culture of mischief making because in the old days, that was what sold print titles. Get your story, get it on the front page, beat the competition and, uh, you know, sit back and enjoy the the sort of fallout. That's a very print Way of approaching it. These days, I think what people will stick around for is good quality, distinctive journalism. And it's refreshing to have that at the front and foremost when you're commissioning. So, what we don't want is we want stories that are putting where there's plenty of context plenty of expertise, where there's a good amount of analysis. And something else that we're really keen to do is to present people, not just with problems, but with solutions. So to try to give people constructive journalism. I think there's a tendency in the news to always paint everything as a problem. Everything is bleak. There are a lot of problems out there, and we're not going to stop writing about them. But what I'd like to be able to do is when discussing a problem or telling the story of a problem, saying, but here's somebody or someplace or something that has solved it with this interesting solution. And I think we find as well, when we do more constructive stories, people, again, they stick around and read us for longer. I think that's what we want. You know, coronavirus is a massive problem, but there are solutions as well. And, you know, we're going to all going to have to learn to live with it. So how best do we go about doing that? Scaremongering is definitely not the answer.
0: Listen, we've um, all grown up in in newsrooms over the the past decades, and there's obviously we've seen a a creep of, call it political correctness, this notion of always sort of walking on eggshells. You've got an extraordinary lineup of some amazing columnists who don't pull any punches. They tell it like it, it is. Does that scare you as an editor today? Because you just you don't know what is going to blow up some days. You, you, you think you did the best job as an editor delivering solutions, but somehow a minority was left out of a story. Somehow something was missed by the copy editors and it becomes the biggest crisis. What is that tension like for you? Obviously, sitting in, of course, one, oh, the, the world's second biggest English language market
1: it's terrifying but i think you know it's like you said you never know what it is that's going to come back and bite you you think you've got it all covered and then it'll be the most smallest most ridiculous thing that you've overlooked and also we do have some very outspoken columnists but i think again one of the ways to sort of manage that is to make sure you keep that old-fashioned divide between comment And news. So news should be reporting both sides, putting everything in context. You know, the old stuff we were all taught at journalism school. And comment, you know, within the bounds of what's acceptable, you know, (laughs) the law, They should be free to say what they want. It sounds obvious, but I think there has been a bit of creep from one to the other. And I think it's really important to stay vigilant on that because also you buy yourself more credibility if you can distinguish between comment and news.
0: So at a time when this is the season to bring in the next wave of news cadets, I don't know if we're allowed to call them news cadets anymore, but it's the season of the internal, hopefully if they can get into the newsroom anyway. Do you find today that your editors have to also do a little bit of correction as well saying, okay, look, this is what you learned in journalism school. And let's present both sides of the story and you have to deliver a great narrative and it has to be fact-checked and all of these types of things. Now, you know, we'd love you to go to do a comment piece, but the comment piece needs to be just that. It needs to have bite, opinion, and sometimes opinion is going to upset people. And I'm wondering if there is actually a bit of course correction that happens with a new wave of journalists who are brought in, who have grown up in a world of already sort of you know, being wrapped in bubble wrap and don't want to not offend, but even just to put across a compelling point of view.
1: It's a challenge. It's a real challenge finding new, young voices who understand everything you've just- outlined, but who also can put their ideas together in a compelling way. You know, I think part of the problem is because there are fewer opportunities now. The the funnel is smaller. You know, in the old days, you could pick people up, sort of up rising stars, from local media, from radio stations, whatever. The breeding ground has been diminished, and so it's much harder to sort of develop people. I think one of the things that we need to do as a newsroom is try and nurture and grow our own talent. And there have been some notable successes where young interns come in to help on the book desk or something, and then somebody in features spots them, gets them to write something and before you know it they're young and flourishing columnists i mean it's a sort of it's a serendipitous business but when when you get it right it's you know hugely gratifying but i think it is difficult there are fewer people to pick from and and, and the background is different you know these these youngsters have all grown up they're digital natives so their idea of journalism is not the same as what we were brought up with but you know they're bright they learn quickly and, and you know it's our job to sort of make sure we're teaching them What's important?
0: Okay, let's look forward to to September. It's end of summer. Social distancing has completely collapsed. Everyone is back to a normal world. Ad budgets have opened up, etc. This is Emma Tucker's moment to really be stomping around the newsroom floor as good editors should. What do you want to do? You don't have to go give away too many state secrets. Uh, You know, you've come in, you've obviously want to shake up the investigative piece. You know that that is something that a Sunday paper should be delivering. What else do you want
1: to do with the paper? Well, I want to invest in the newsroom. I think, you know, good specialist reporters... They are the bedrock of a good newspaper. But I also want to invest in digital expertise. You know, we need more digital experts to help give our journalism greater cut through we have got an excellent audience team we've got a great data team but the newsroom is still skewed you know we need more of the audience and data and interactives people uh, than we currently have so i want to bring in new hungry voices with digital expertise who can work closely with those old school traditions and one of the things that I, i get more joy than anything from is seeing one of the old you know died in the wool news hacks sitting down with one of our digital people and watching them work closely together each of them bringing something different to the table but resulting in a kind of modern type of journalism for you know for an era where you've got to have cut through there's so much noise out there people are not going to read our journalism unless it's truly distinctive but you know for that to happen you've got to have the old school core values and the kind of new expertise that, that knows what it is you need to deliver or how and how you You deliver journalism to a digital audience.
0: And just finally, franchises. You have one of the most powerful franchises of, of any newspaper in Europe with your rich list. But you would also argue as well that that's probably one of the the only franchises that people would really associate with the Sunday Times. You know, at a time when everyone is looking also, you know, to, for extensions, you guys are moving into radio, etc. Do you also see this as an opportunity as well? Because that's also something which that's one of those moments when also the Sunday Times goes global. And, you, you know, you see, of course, all of these families that you thought were living in Belgium but are non-doms <laughs> in the U.K., and are appearing on your list, do you see an opportunity to also build up other extensions again, which, you know, obviously hopefully drive in revenue to the paper, but also continue to build the paper's name?
1: Well, we do, we do have a number of franchises as well as The Rich List. They don't have quite the same cut through, but they're there, they're well established and they're growing. So best places to live, good university guide, the best schools guide. So we do a number of really consumer focused or sort of reader focused guides that we're building on. Um, we've recently uh, brought back during lockdown a kind of school version of the Funday Times, which is working both in print and digital. But in terms of other franchises, we're extending our personal finance section, which we're planning to be more ambitious around travel and property. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because these sections used to be there as vehicles for print advertising. And the question that faces us now is, well, how do you grow reader revenue out of some of the things you already do without compromising your journalistic standards? Because we know that the money is not going to come from digital advertising. That will never make up the loss. What we're losing from print advertising, subscription revenue is great. And it's, you know, thank goodness we have it. But in and of itself, it's not enough to fund the current state of affairs so you know we do need to look for new bits of reader revenue so so that's a challenge But part of that is getting behind these great projects and franchises that do make the Sunday Times a destination at certain points in the year. So yeah, there's a lot of thinking going on there alongside the radio. We also do a podcast now, a daily podcast. So there's that, you know, we're trying to be a much more multi-talented, multi-platform media outfit than we were.
0: And also maybe a return to um, a proper good old lunch as well. I don't know. I just noticed that sort of looking out the windows here in Zurich, it's like now that people go to restaurants, there are deals being done. And, you know, we can sort of... Of sit and oh, talk yeah. about lockdown. All we want and you know, isn't the world great on Zoom and everything like that? Yeah, yeah fantastic. I don't know if you're really going to close a deal. And I, it's, it's the first thing you noticed was the lunch crowd in a continental city. And these aren't sort of lunchtime affairs there's business being done. And I think that's actually one of the maybe the arts that has been lost in a lot of the newspapers as well. We thought that digital advertiser was going to be great. Well, lo and behold, it hasn't worked. You better know someone at a big German auto company or an airline or a bank quite well, and they might be able to spend some money with you.
1: Yeah, and if they don't want to spend it in display advertising like they used to, well, how do they want to spend it? You know, are there sections that they might want to sponsor or, you know, is there, are there events that they want to sponsor? I mean, what's clear is the days when you just had to fill a newspaper and print the ads obviously those days are over so we're having to be really sort of innovative about what we're doing and again I think you know this crisis that we're in at the moment has really challenged some of the other media models which have been based around events or whatever you know I mean but I, I think the message is you've got to have lots of different sources of revenue to survive.
0: Thanks to the Sunday Times Editor-in-Chief, Emma Tucker, for joining us for this week's episode of The Chiefs, part of our big interview series. Look out for our next episode with restaurateur and co-founder of Corbett & King, Jeremy King. The big interview is produced by Paige Reynolds, researched by Charlie Filmer Court, and edited by Sean Hickey. I'm Tyler Burlet in Zurich. Thanks very much for listening.